Welcome to a Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team, and today we're discussing the UK's budget. Rishi Sunak has delivered his first budget as the UK's Chancellor, promising to spend £30 billion reacting to the coronavirus, as well as investing in infrastructure and housing. But of course, all this needs to be paid for, partly with a lot more borrowing, but also through tax. With me to discuss the Chancellor's measures on business taxation are Helen Buchanan, Paul Davison and Jill Gatehouse, partners in our London tax team. Hello, everyone. Good morning, Josh. Hi, Josh. Helen, let's get straight into one of the biggest measures that received no mention in the Chancellor's speech at all. What's going on with the UK's digital services tax? Well, it's true. There wasn't much fanfare around the announcement that the government is going ahead with the introduction of a digital services tax on the 1st of April. It's there in the small print, but it wasn't mentioned at all in the budget speech. In one respect, that's not a surprise. The DST was announced in the budget 2018. It was consulted on extensively last summer. And by way of reminder, it's a 2% tax on the gross revenues from UK users of social media platforms, search engines and online marketplaces. From what we can see, not much has changed from the draft legislation that was put out for consultation last July, beyond the tweaks trailed uh, in the response to the consultation which we saw in September. What's surprising, though, is that the government is quite quietly pushing ahead with what's in effect a two billion raid on large tech companies, particularly the US large tech companies, at the same time as trying to negotiate a US trade deal. We know the US has previously threatened tariffs in response to similar attempts to tax its web giants. So it'll be interesting to see how the US responds in this case. And Helen, we, we know that in January, the French government announced a deal with the US to delay collecting some of their digital services tax until the end of this year, pending international agreement at the OECD level. Is there any sign of a similar wait-and-see approach from the UK? Well, there's some acknowledgement that the measure will be reviewed in light of international developments, and, and most obviously that means the OECD's Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 proposals. And also the timing um, of the payments uh, has been pushed to annual. That means that most payments won't be due until well into 2021. So there may be some scope to row back. Perhaps they're hoping that this will give long enough for the OECD to get its act together. Or perhaps they're simply trying to keep DST in play as a bargaining chip for the US trade negotiations. We're going to have to wait and see. OK, so let's watch this space. Jill, bringing us on to Entrepreneurs Relief. There was a lot of speculation in the run-up to the budget that Entrepreneurs Relief would be abolished entirely, with concerns that it wasn't providing value for money or incentivising the right kind of people. Can you talk us through what the Chancellor has done with it and also explain why this relief is really quite limited now? Yeah, absolutely, Josh. So as you say, there was a lot of press speculation around this. Um, and in fact, the relief hasn't been abolished. So just to recap on what the relief actually delivers. So it's a reduced tax rate on gains in circumstances where the person both works in the business and owns at least a 5% economic interest in the business. And it's been criticised as not delivering value for money, and in particular for giving a large amount of relief to a much wider spectrum of people than was originally intended when the relief was brought in. When the relief was actually brought in as a replacement for taper relief, the limit was a million pounds. But over time, it's been increased to 10 million. In recent years, actually, the the scope of the relief has been hugely restricted so that actually some of the criticism that we have seen in terms of the scope of people being able to rely on it despite not having material interests in the business was actually reduced some time ago but nonetheless this hasn't been enough to prevent the criticism and so it has been now reduced so that there is a lifetime cap of a million pounds on which the 10% rate can be claimed but it's not been abolished in its entirety but it does mean that it is now going to be limited to those kind of smaller 
entrepreneurs that are a bit of a theme in this budget. Thanks, Jill. I know a lot of clients have already been in touch to ask about how this affects their current transactions. And normally we'd say a capital gains disposal is triggered when a seller has an unconditional contract to sell their shares. But if a seller hasn't got to that stage yet, are they now too late? One of the very interesting things uh, about the way in which this, this change has been brought in, you mentioned the fact that there's been quite a lot of press speculation. And actually, when this rule was brought in, it's been brought in with effect from disposals from budget day, so from yesterday. But then there has also been what are called anti-forestalling measures. But typically, what, when we've seen anti-forestalling measures in the past, they've been in circumstances where a change to the rules have been announced, but the actual bringing in of the effect of the rules is going to be in the future. And so there is kind of anti-forestalling measures for that gap. In fact, these are anti-pre-forestalling measures because they apply into to transactions which have actually undertaken before budget date. So in some circumstances where certain conditions are met, essentially where people have intentionally tried to take advantage of the date of disposal point that you mentioned in the question, Josh, then the date for the disposal for CGT purposes will be sort of pushed out to the date that the contract actually completes and therefore the reduced rate of entrepreneurs relief will apply. And there are also some measures that will apply so that where people have done share for share exchanges within the last tax year in fact but haven't yet made their elections that would mean that they've already elected for entrepreneurs relief to apply to that share for share exchange that they will also be subject to the reduced rate of relief so it's quite an interesting approach that the government has taken in circumstances where there's been speculation in relation to changes to the rules to effectively capture actions that people have taken before budget date which is a new thing Right, so some taxpayers are going to have to look back and check the transactions that they've already done. Correct. Okay, and Helen, bringing us on to tax evasion and avoidance, what has the Chancellor done here? Well, there are some pretty big numbers put in around collection of tax from tax evasion, avoidance and and general compliance. We've been used in the last few years to seeing budgets balanced with some pretty ambitious targets for closing the tax gap. A couple of years ago, the budget was forecast to raise 4.8 billion from further compliance measures. This year is no exception. Uh, we can see that there's 4.4 billion promised from additional tax compliance measures. Separately, there's a promise of 4.7 billion from tax avoidance and evasion counteraction. It's not exactly clear where this money will come from, and there may be some double counting in there. But it is worth comparing these figures with the Labour manifesto boast that it would raise 6.2 billion from a crackdown in tax avoidance. And the more conservative Conservative Party promise that they would raise 400 million. This has now been turned into well over 4 billion. But there are also some quite interesting and, and potentially quite worrying proposals in the very fine detail about tax administration and compliance. One of these is an announcement on tax conditionality. There's a narrow point there. In that respect, taxi and minicab drivers, among others, will find that their licences going forward are conditional on tax registration. This is from April 2022. That's quite an interesting idea, but probably won't cause too many of us to have a sleepless night. But there's a broader point, which is a wider proposal to make all government awards and authorisations conditional on good tax compliance. We're told to expect a discussion document on this, and there's very little detail. But it's definitely one that's worth looking out for, because we've got no clue as to what good tax compliance means in this context. If, for example, the idea is that you won't be able to compete for government contracts if you've been penalised for carelessness or deliberate behaviour in your tax affairs, that would be a really worrying development. Another interesting point we saw was a requirement for all large businesses to notify HMRC 
if they take a position which HMRC is likely to challenge. But how are taxpayers supposed to figure that out? Not very clear. It seems to be based on international accounting standards. And we think it's trying to draw on some judgments that they have to make already. Again, we're promised a consultation with the detail. And again, it'll be really interesting to see how that's pitched. But it could be quite a headache for businesses who are afraid that effectively they end up with a range of self-fulfilling prophecies uh, if they have to tell the revenue things that they think the revenue might want to look at. On that point around the existing need for a judgment, we think the revenue there have in mind a requirement under international financial reporting standards in IFRIC 23 to determine your tax position on a basis that requires you as a first step to ask whether the tax authority are likely to accept your tax treatment. So in one sense, you might think that all the revenue are asking here is for you to tell them about a decision-making process that you need to go through anyway for accounting purposes. But the implications of that are potentially quite significant nevertheless. There's quite an interesting point here on tax provisioning. Something we were discussing about this before the, the podcast is that taxpayers are generally pretty reluctant to get under the bonnet of their provisioning. But if in effect what this is saying is that you need to tell the revenue where you've made a provision and why you've made a provision, there is, I think, this concern that that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. And I think under the IFRIC 23 guidance, it's also interesting to see that you're required in determining whether the tax authority is likely to accept the position you're taking to assume full information on the part of the tax authority, which may have an implication here in terms of the approach that you've now got to take to a specific decision point around whether to notify the revenue that they are likely or unlikely to accept a position that you're taking. I think one interesting point around this will be what the consequences are of non-compliance, which of course we'll see when we see the more detailed provisions. Obviously, taxpayers already have to think about the possibility of penalties in circumstances where the revenue disagrees with them. The sense is that there'll be some kind of additional level of penalty or uh, for failure to comply with this additional requirement to actually call something out to the revenue in the wise space. There's also a question to my mind as to whether it elevates the status of revenue guidance and whether in effect you have to test your own view of the law against what the revenue say or might be saying, Mm. not only at the time you do the transaction, but also right up to the point of filing. And the point you make, Jill, about the revenue's powers that they'll have to uh, enforce this and to investigate compliance with it uh, is interesting in terms of the implications that might have for the revenue's ability to dig into the processes and decision-making around provisioning in your accounts, which is traditionally an area that taxpayers have been very reluctant to let the revenue see anything in that area and where if the revenue were to ask you would simply say it's completely irrelevant how I might account for a transaction that has no bearing on what the tax treatment of the transaction is which is what it's your job to investigate but if the revenue are now able to test whether you have appropriately decided not to notify the revenue that you think it is probable that they will disagree with your position, then query whether that will allow them to get under the bonnet, as Helen says, in relation to an aspect of that tax accounting process that's typically been closely guarded by taxpayers. Okay, so potentially some quite onerous disclosure and compliance obligations coming through in this budget. But Paul, can you take us through some of the good news for business from the Chancellor? Sure. 
there's a suite of proposals under a, a backing business banner. And the Chancellor's focus there seems to be on small businesses and for, for larger businesses on encouraging investment and particularly in the R&D and intangibles space. So for small businesses, there's some temporary business rates relief and then there's an increase in the employment allowance against employers' NICs. That's projected to cost around half a billion pounds per annum over the next five years, which makes it one of the more expensive tax giveaways in the budget. For larger businesses, there's going to be an increase in the rate of the R&D expenditure credit, taking that from 12 to 13%. Uh, there's going to be what is in effect a 50% uplift in the rate of the new structures and buildings allowance. And then there are also some potentially favourable, albeit quite technical, changes to the regime for intangible fixed assets. Did you want to go into more detail on the structures and buildings allowance? Well, so these are a a relatively newly introduced or one might say reintroduced part of the capital allowances code. So the structures and buildings allowances or SBAs were introduced as part of the last budget, which was back in October 2018. Now, we used to have something called industrial buildings allowances, and those were available at 4% on a range of buildings and infrastructure assets. IBAs were phased out from 2008, including for existing spend. In 2018, there was the introduction of what might be thought of as a replacement for IBAs, the Structures and Buildings Allowances. And as introduced, they gave relief at 2% on new commercial construction. What's happening now? Well, the budget will increase that rate from 2% to 3%, including for new structures and buildings that have been contracted since October 2018. Okay, so good news for spending on R&D and new commercial buildings. Paul, you mentioned some technical changes to the intangible fixed asset rules. I've read the government's announcement on this. Can I now forget about the old pre-2002 CGT rules? Would that that were so, Josh. I'm afraid you probably can't. So we might need just briefly to remind people of what we're talking about here when we talk about pre-2002 assets. And, And the point here is that when the current rules for intangible fixed assets, which broadly give relief for amortization on an accounts basis against income, when those rules were introduced in 2002, It was done on a basis that retained the pre-existing rather archaic CGT and income regimes for assets that were created before 2002 uh, unless and until they were the subject of a third-party transaction. And people have long found that distinction awkward and difficult and it's given rise to disputes. In 2018, as part of considering a, a suite of changes to the intangible fixed assets regime, the government contemplated getting rid of this distinction, but they they actually then decided it was too expensive and would be too complex to do. Now, as you say, if you read the tin, you you could quite easily come away with the impression that they've changed their mind, uh, they've seen sense, and thought that it is the right thing to do to get rid of that distinction and simply to bring all assets within the new regime. I'm not at all sure, though, that that's actually what they have in mind. Now, we, we don't have draft legislation on this yet, so we're, we're going to have to see, and it's a little bit speculative. But what I suspect they actually mean here is only to relax the rule that says a related party transaction won't bring assets within the new rules having 
been within the old ones for cases where assets are brought within the UK tax net or specifically within the UK corporation tax net for the first time. So what they're saying, I think, is just that going forward, a group with IP held offshore will be able to bring it into the UK on a basis that brings it within the new regime. But I think that's it, and that beyond that, the existing, continuing, now nearly two decades old, distinction between pre- and post-2002 assets will remain with us for some time to come. Okay, so potentially an improved amount of tax relief for people onshoring IP intra-group, but still having to deal with that pre- and post-2002 distinction. Agreed, and certainly those ongoing disputes will still need to be worked through for historic transactions where that's been significant. It's also clear that the revenue will remain keen to prevent individuals, particularly using incorporation as a means of generating the income relief in respect of IP. And finally, Jill, there there was a consultation around the asset management industry. Um, Do you want to comment on that? Yes, I mean, it's quite high level at the moment, Josh. So as well as actually consulting on some regulatory aspects for the asset management business, which is all about Brexit, there's also a consultation paper with the revenue quite tentatively, I think we should say, suggesting that they're happy to look at and listen to representations in a number of areas which are relevant, in particular to funds who are looking to potentially use the UK as the jurisdiction for the holding company through which they would invest into various assets. The consultation reads, as I say, as a very much a shopping list, let's say, of things that people in that sector might like to see from the UK government. Things like expanding the scope of the substantial shareholdings exemption so that it can more easily be available to real estate funds. Things like allowing the securitisation company regime to apply to effectively credit funds, which we do see in other jurisdictions like Spain and Italy. The ability to more flexibly get money out of uh, UK companies in capital form, which is something that the private equity industry would like to see. And then also, indeed, some further consultation around withholding on interest being the UK is obviously an attractive jurisdiction compared to, for example, Luxembourg, when you look at dividend withholding, but less attractive where you're thinking about withholding on interest. So I think that's very much a high level consultation, very much no promises from the government, but interesting nonetheless that they are clearly listening to representatives from that industry. Thank you, Jill. Thanks to everyone, Helen Buchanan, Paul Davison, Jill Gatehouse. If clients would like further information, they can go to our website or contact their usual Freshfields contact.